All right, we're back in Romans 13. Join me there if you would. Romans 13, Lord willing, I'm going to finish that chapter this morning. You get there, if you stand, we'll read the passage together if you're able to stand. Romans chapter 13, we'll read verse 8 through the end of the chapter. Owe no man anything but to love one another. For he that loveth another hath fulfilled the law. For this thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not bear false witness, thou shalt not covet. And if there be any other commandment, it is briefly comprehended in this saying, namely, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Love worketh no ill to his neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. And that knowing the time, that now it is high time to awake out of sleep. For now is our salvation nearer than when we believed. The night is far spent, the day is at hand. Let us therefore cast off the works of darkness, and let us put on the armor of light. Let us walk honestly as in the day, not in rioting and drunkenness, not in chambering and wantonness, not in strife and envying. But put ye on the Lord Jesus Christ. Make not provision for the flesh, but fulfill the lust thereof. Let's pray again. O oh Lord God, Your Word is precious. And we pray, God, that we would see that this is indeed a light shining in a dark place. And not just a book as an end in and of itself, but an inspired record that tells us about the God that made us about what it is You require of us, how You see us, what You expect of us, what You've given us. And thank You, Lord, for telling us all that we need to know. That this Word is sufficient to bring us to completion, to build us up in godliness and maturity and wisdom. And Father, again we ask that Your Word would do its powerful and living work this morning. This book is alive. And we thank You that it is. And we pray, Lord, that would be manifested once again as we meet here in obedience, as Your Word is preached, as Your people have gathered here. Listen to this Word taught. Bless us this morning, Lord. Help us to strike deeper roots, to be more fully grounded, to be better equipped to worship You and to shine a light in this dark world. In Jesus' name, Amen. Basically, this passage is just sort of a list of a few obligations we're going to look at that are put on the Christian living in this uh, present world. Uh, you probably noticed that first verse we read talks about owing or about the uh, subject of debt. Uh, maybe you've seen the bumper sticker. Uh, I've seen it, and I have to admit, I kind of chuckled the first time I saw it. It's obviously referencing a movie I wouldn't necessarily endorsed from years ago with seven infamous dwarves, but the bumper sticker says, I owe, I owe, so off to work I go. I was thinking, doesn't that fit uh, the American mindset? I mean, in our current setting, uh, the idea of not owing anything to anybody is really nearly foreign. I remember a job I worked at years ago when we were filling out credit applications for customers that would come in. Uh, one of the questions was, do you rent your home? Are you buying your home? 
Or do you own your home? And most of them said, we own our home. To which we were required to ask, so you don't have a mortgage payment. We have a mortgage payment. And we would say, well, uh, the bank actually owns your home. So the answer is you are buying your home. I don't know about you, but if I stop making my mortgage payment, I'm going to find out who really owns my house. It's the bank and not necessarily me. I was at Target some time ago. I don't like shopping at Target, I will admit, but I remember seeing in the shopping cart their little slogan that at least used to be there. I haven't been there for a while, but it says, Charge it! The easy way to pay! And I was thinking, well, I suppose it depends who's defining the word easy, doesn't it? But that is how our culture views things. And this whole concept of reward points and mileage, now that can be wonderful, it can also be a curse. How many of you have run across people that think they're going to spend their way to prosperity? Let's sink ourselves up to our ears in a hole because we'll save 25 cents a gallon the next time we fill up our tank. So obviously that also hooks many people. You can go to a website called the U.S. Debt Clock. It's actually kind of depressing, I will admit. But it's this whole screen full of little numbers or big numbers all spiraling upward in personal debt, National debt, you can watch the national debt in real time, and let me tell you something, it's hard to stomach. It's going up really fast. That number is approaching $20 trillion, which, by the way, is larger than our entire economy. We have the largest economy on earth. How big is $20 trillion? Well, if you spent $700 million a day, Let's say you like to collect cars. You like the most expensive Ferraris at a price tag of $400,000 each. And so you go car shopping. You buy 1,750 brand new expensive Ferraris every day. It would take you 80 years before you ran out of money with what our country owes. Or you could put it this way. Let's say you're going to stack up $1 bills. What's $20 trillion look like? Well, you'd stack up $1 bills and it would go from here to the moon and back, and then back to the moon and back, and back to the moon. That's a lot of money. I understand uh, in our culture, it's almost impossible to live without at least some measure of debt. That's the vehicle that drives small business. People get an idea, they find investors. Some time ago I heard a rather amusing story about our own extended family. You know how these stories go. I'm not sure exactly how accurate it was, but I'll share it anyhow. Uh, my great-great-grandfather immigrated from Italy, ended up in the Seattle area, and him and his five sons, they had a very successful florist business on 3rd Avenue in Seattle uh, in the early 1900s. Well, lo and behold, comes a young businessman to him and says, Hey, I've got a new business enterprise. I was wondering if you'd like to invest money in it. So well, what's your idea? He says, well, I'd like to build an airplane or two. Well, keep in mind, this is just a few years after Kitty Hawk. And so my great-grandfather and his sons, or great-great-grandfather and sons, they said, you know, I'm not sure about the future of that. Uh, we're going to stick with flowers. Well, that young man's name was William Boeing. And you know the rest of the story, right? Well, obviously, though, we cannot... Adopt the cultural view of debt as gospel truth. That's a big mistake. But what should the Christian's view be towards it? And actually, what I'm going to show you is the primary discussion here isn't really about money at all. There's actually a whole lot more to it. 
But let's pick up there in verse 8. Responsibility number one that's mentioned is pay up. Owe no man anything. Now, no man and anything actually in the original is a double negative. And the idea is it's, it's there twice as a negative, which in the Greek is a way of emphasizing it. Don't owe anybody anything. Never. Don't do it. Well, let's put that statement in context first. I think the mind naturally goes to money, but keep in mind uh, where we've been. The context that we were in last week is talking about the believer's attitude and perspective towards human government. And it's imperative the Lord's sovereign control over world affairs is understood and believed on a practical level. Isn't it true that a Christianity, a theology that doesn't affect where the rubber meets the road is pretty much useless in this current world. Someone has said the world's not looking for a new definition of Christianity, it's looking for a new demonstration of Christianity. I think that's a good way to look at it. And one of the litmus tests of your own theology is your response to government. The way you think about human authority. The way you speak about human authority. The way you act towards human authority. We close with verse 7 where it says, Render therefore to all their dues. And then it talks about taxes, it uses the word tribute, which is talking about taxes on people or real estate. It uses the word custom, which is a tax on goods, sales tax, import tax. But it says also beyond that, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. So it's saying it's not just monetary. You owe fear, you owe honor, you owe respect. So the principle given, the larger principle is, Christian people should not be seen by those outside as people who do not meet their obligations. If you think of the word righteousness, hopefully you remember the definition of what that word means. Basically, the word righteousness means meeting obligations. Doing what I ought to do from heaven's perspective. And the Lord doesn't want His people living in a crooked and sin-cursed world to be perceived as those who do not do what they're supposed to do. Pretty basic principle, but one we need to be reminded on. Even the Lord says about Himself in Hebrews 6. Amazing verse. God is not unrighteous to forget your work and labor of love. The Lord is saying because of what He's promised to His people, for Him to forget the good deeds done for His name's sake, He would then be unrighteous. Obviously, uh, our God cannot be that. So you not only owe taxes but you owe fear and respect to those that are placed over you. That means government on all levels. That means your employer. And that means many other areas and layers that could be named. Now there is a great deal that could be said here about the Christian and financial debt. As some ask the question, well now, can this really be applied to modern culture? Perhaps you've read the writings of George Mueller and others, and, uh, which by the way I recommend doing. And some would take the hard-line position to say never, ever, 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 ever borrow money. Uh, that is a hard one to fit in today's culture, not the culture defines the Scriptures for us. But I think we have to take this in context. I just want to give a few, passage, or a few principles here on uh, handling money in this culture, and then we're going to move on. But particularly when it comes to high-dollar purchases, such as a home. Some of you know people. They started when they were young. They saved up. By the time they hit 30, they paid cash for a house. How many of you did that? I didn't. Would I like to go back in the past and do that? Sure. Well, the problem is my time machine's broken. Any of you know how to fix it, let me know. Okay? 
So some of us know examples of that, but most of us, it didn't work out that way. Uh, obviously, we need to live somewhere. Now, what is debt? Well, technically speaking, debt is anything that's not paid for. But I think a better way to look at this through this passage is anything that is owed and there's not sufficient resources on hand to pay it off and when the stated agreement is not met. So, in large part, it carries the idea pay your bills. Now, let me give you an example. Let's say you have two friends at the store and one says, well, I left my wallet in the car. Well, I'm going to buy your spaghetti noodles for you and just pay me back when you get home. Well, have you broken this command? I would say no. You've got resources to pay it off. You intend to do so. You have not broken the stated agreement. It's not been a poor testimony. Now, if you never pay that person back, that's a different matter. You borrow your neighbor's lawnmower, and seven months later, he's still asking for it. Okay, now we have a problem because it's a bad reflection on the Lord. Uh, the same is true with your phone bill. I mean, technically, you get your phone bill, and you've owed that for 25 days by the time you pay it, usually, because it started accruing the end of uh, last month. Now, obviously, most of the time, a home is going to exceed the mortgage owed. Therefore, it is sufficient collateral. There is money on hand to pay it off should it need to be sold. I wouldn't say buying a home is a violation of this command. If I thought that, I wouldn't own a home. Okay, so I think that's something we have to put up with in this culture. You do have to pay to live somewhere. But most debt in America, if we're honest, probably does not fall into that category. What about the wrong kind of debts? Well, just a few principles on that. Number one, what does the Bible call debt? Debt is slavery. Now, our culture says debt is the way out. Debt is the fast track to the good life now. Debt is the easy way to pay. Can't afford that couch? Why, 18 easy installments of $49.95, the couch can be yours. You can sit on it tonight. That's how a lot of it goes. So Proverbs says it so plainly, the borrower is servant to the lender. So to have a scriptural mindset, we need to look at debt as rattling chains and shackles being locked onto your wrist. That's what debt is. That's what it is. The Bible says that. You are servant to a lender. You are placing yourself in bondage. You better make sure it's a good idea to do that. Number two. Here's one that we just love to hear. The real culprit is often covetousness. Colossians 3. If you're risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. You're dead, your life is hid with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall you also appear with Him in glory. What's the point? Mortify, therefore, because of that, your members which are upon the earth. And then it mentions a list, the last one of which is covetousness, which is idolatry. The inordinate desire for more, more, more. He doesn't just call it unwise, he calls it an idol. Oh, those filthy Philistines bowing down to Dagon in their temple. Hmm. Idolatry, the Lord says. If we don't have our mind cleansed constantly, we will succumb to this. I mean, we need to know the real difference between necessity and nicety. How many of you think our culture has lost that one? And by the way, we're not going to come down in the same place on all of that. If any one of us sat down and made a list of what we would call necessities, it would probably differ. 
There are people who live in Mexico, out in the desert, who live in a home made of pallets and tarps, who would say the most frugal person in this, in this room is sinfully extravagant. I'm not saying it's wrong to have a house, I'm just saying perspective to some degree is going to differ. But the principle remains the same. Covetousness is idolatry. You've got to know the difference. Is this a need? Or is this really something that can wait? Next to that is planning wisely and trusting the Lord are not exclusive principles. God uses things like savings accounts. God uses things like budgets. Someone has said a budget is telling your money where to go instead of wondering where it went. I think that's a tremendous principle. Some of you, if you're honest... I can jump in this boat because of mistakes I've made in the past. You face some crisis, and this isn't always the case, but some of you faced a crisis and years down the road, after it's passed, you can look back and say, a lot of the reason I faced that is because of poor planning. And I was feeling the sting of ignoring Bible principles, thank God for disciplining me of His child. Any of you been there? I have, I'll admit it. I grew up, I did not learn wise financial planning. A lot of that was my own knuckleheaded fault. I remember when I was 18, I was going to go to college. And I remember my dad telling me, Now son, you ought to go right up the street to the community college, live at home, eat at home. You do eat a lot, you know, it's expensive. Live at home, eat at home, get your base classes done there. It doesn't really matter until the final two years. You can go graduate where you want. Oh no, dad. I gotta go out of state and live in the dorms. I paid for those dorms till I was 30 years old. I should have listened. And every time I wrote that check every month, I remembered you should have listened to counsel. But it was a lot of months of reminders before I got the memo on that one. And thank God for being patient with this slow learner. It's not faith most of the time to commit to long-term payments that we can't realistically afford. Many times it's just sinful presumption and it takes time and planning to get out of this yoke of bondage. We can't necessarily expect the Lord to miraculously bail us out when we didn't listen. But what the Lord will do is bless honest steps of faith and obedience and hard work to get out of the bondage over time. He will bless that. He will. But what I want to point out, though, the main emphasis in this verse is actually not staying out of financial bondage. That's touched on, but here's what is emphasized. Realizing the indebtedness that you will always have. You know, every one of you, if you belong to Christ, there's at least one debt that you can never repay. And that is love. Some of you remember Paul's IMs back in Romans 1. Remember what they were? I am ready to preach the Gospel. I am not ashamed of the Gospel of Christ. What was the other one? I am debtor. Paul looked at himself as owing something to the Greeks and to the barbarians and to the wise and the unwise because he had been bestowed with so much and he saw it correctly that God didn't give this to me to be like the Dead Sea and have no outlet. He gave this to me to be a conduit. And the Lord said... He that believes in Me, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. That's what he was talking about. It's your closeness, your connectivity to Christ that makes you like living water in a parched desert to this world around you. Think of it this way. Picture, here's this wealthy benefactor. And he goes to one of our major cities and he walks through Skid Row. 
And uh, he finds next to a dumpster the most miserable specimen of humanity you can locate. A man who sent himself all the way to death's doorstep. He's enslaved to substance abuse. He doesn't have a penny to his name. No respectable person will identify with him. His family's disowned him. He's up to his neck in impossible debt to creditors that he can't repay in a dozen lifetimes. Well, this wealthy benefactor takes him, cleans him up in his own home, clothes him in beautiful garments, and gives him a new name, adopts him as a son, and he promises him someday soon I'm going to be giving you a mansion that far exceeds all descriptions that could be given. I'm not even going to tell you much about it because I can't even describe it in language you could understand. He takes away his vices somehow. He fills them with virtue. And now this former wretch looks into the face of this new father and he says, what can I ever do to repay you? father says, uh, well, you really can't ever repay me. But while I'm away... I want you to show your gratefulness to me by pouring out treasures on others from the same slums that you came out of. The man says, but Father, they, they don't deserve such treatment. He says, no, neither did you. He says, but, but what do I have to give them? What resources can I pour out on them? He says, I've taken away your debt but I've also created a storehouse for you that has more resources in it than you could ever spend. Now as I've freely given to you, I want you to freely give to them. Now love, of course, is that treasure that's to be poured out. We've talked about love some in recent months. Most of us, I think, we could describe it biblically. I'll just say a few things. It is the word agape or agape. I think it's important to understand there are different words translated love in the New Testament. But agape or agape, charity, is a supernatural love. This is a love that is impossible for someone who doesn't know God to manifest. This is a characteristic that comes from being full of the Holy Ghost. There are human counterparts to all the things God gives. There is a human joy. There is a human type of love. But this particular love is one that only comes from God Himself and is only manifested as a result of knowing God. It's kind of like the moon has no light of its own. But the moon's light is because of the sun. Your love, your supernatural love, is in the degree that your face is turned towards the Son of God. And it will always be that way. Love, of course, is a choice. It's not primarily a feeling if we're going to obey the Word of God. And it is a fruit of the Spirit. It's mentioned in Galatians. That means a lost person cannot manifest this. And without walking in fellowship with God, neither can you and I. But here's the other side, a glorious fact. You know, earthly debt, you have to come up with the resources yourself, don't you? But this debt, the resources have been infinitely and freely bestowed. I hope you remember the early verses of Romans 5. We have peace with God. We have access into this grace wherein we stand. And it pictures this large storehouse. And the word access is coming in through the presence of another. And the picture is Christ is taking you into this massive storehouse of God's richest treasures like a silo stacking up to the heavens. And part of that storehouse is the grace to pour out the love of God on a world that doesn't deserve it. 
and doesn't know it. God Himself is the pattern. God's love is self-sacrificing. Probably the most famous verse in existence that most of the world can quote. For God so loved the world, that means in this manner, for God so loved the world that He felt, for God so loved the world that He gave. Biblical love cannot exist without sacrifice. One of the hideous symptoms of what the Bible says will happen in the last days when men are lovers of their own selves. Tozer had an article years ago called Symptomatic Speech. And he was talking about what you can tell by a person's complaints. Some of those are the great God I. That's not what I think. What about me? What about my feelings? It's not that we're never to consider self. But listen, biblical supernatural love. What if God had just considered himself? You think it was fun to come to this world to be born in a stable to bear your sin? You think it was enjoyable to be spit upon by the creatures He'd made out of the dust? Was God obligated to come here to save your sorry carcass and mine? Not hardly. But He stepped out of heaven's glory. No mortal can even understand what He gave up to come here. The riches He walked away from. What Christ really suffered on that cross when He gave. And... It is given even to those who are undeserving. Again, in Romans 5, God commendeth His love toward us. Remember the old discussion is talking about even for a good man, some would dare to die. And he's saying, hey, there's people that their natural virtue, a friend of yours, a family member, a, 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 a someone you know that you might say, yeah, I think I could die for that person. People in our military do that. I think God they do. But the point he's making is a contrast there. But God showed His love toward us, which is entirely different. How? In that while we were yet sinners. You say, oh, they don't deserve it. Neither do you. Neither do you. Neither do I. Notice he says, love is the fulfilling of the law, he that loveth another hath fulfilled the law. I want to clarify that. It's not saying the Ten Commandments is now the rule for the Christian life. Galatians, among other places, blows that out of the water. He's not saying, now that you love, look for these list of ten rules and that will show you what it's all about. The law is speaking of this whole system which was a reflection of the righteous character of God. Now think about it. All of us are lawbreakers. The law was given to show depravity but he that has the love of God shed abroad in his heart and walks in the Spirit intrinsically is going to fulfill the Spirit of the law and go beyond that. That's the whole point he's making. The law is here. He's saying he that loves like God does is going to go right past that, clear up to here, to a supernatural level, which is what the New Testament does require of us. Notice five commands are given there quoted in verse 9, and it's five of the commands from the second table of the law. The one about honoring parents is not there. Uh, why? That's another discussion, but it's not just thrown out for no reason. It's, uh, he, in fact, he's going to cover it when he says if there be any other commandment. But basically, he's given the ones that primarily deal with loving your neighbor. And here's the point he's making. Those five commands, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not kill, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness or lie, you shall not covet, 
And if there be any other commandment, he's saying it's summed up in this. Love your neighbor as yourself. And he's saying basically what God required in the law towards others was to love them. But here's the problem. In a legalistic mindset, in a system that's built towards avoiding the curse, basically people want to do the least amount to avoid being cursed and judged. But you see, under grace... We're asked by the Son of God who gave Himself for us to give to others from the vast storehouse that He's already given. Look at verse 10. Love worketh no ill to his neighbor. Now think about that for a minute. In other words, true God-honoring biblical love is preeminently concerned with doing what is eternally best for those around you. Stop and filter your life for a minute through that statement. Does that motivate your treatment of those around you? That I will do what is eternally best for them. And by the way, eternally best means heaven's perspective or that you are subject to the Word of God and God's viewpoint. It's not what you and I pick. Boy, that's a tough one. If you really love like God does, are you going to commit adultery? If you really love like God does, are you going to commit murder? Which, by the way, more than just a physical act, character assassination. These lips are guilty of murder more times than we'll ever know on this earth. If you really love like God does, are you going to lie? If you really love like God does, are you going to covet things that have been given to somebody else or are you going to thank God He's blessed them? But see, it goes far beyond the law of Moses. If you love like God does, if you're concerned about what's internally, eternally best for others, you're willing to risk the relationship to confront sin. If you love like God does, it's going to move you to pray for one another. It's going to move you to bear one another's burdens. It's going to move you to bear or to give the bread of life to the spiritually starving. If you really love like God does, it's going to require exercising forgiveness. If you really love like God does, it's going to demand bearing with one another. There's not a person in here who hasn't annoyed the pants off somebody else in their life. Every one of you have, so have I. Why is it we get the idea everybody's annoying but us? Human nature is disgusting, it really is. But you know what I'm talking about. So owe, man, owe no man anything but love. Pay up. That's the first obligation. Notice the second, verse 11. Wake up. Back when I was a poor college student, the bed I was sleeping on was like sleeping in a ditch sideways, and I was having back issues. I thought, I'm going to go pick out a nice mattress. Well, I don't know that I'd been mattress shopping up to that point in my life, and they're not cheap. And, and then here comes the slick salesman. He's going to reel me in, you know, and... And he can tell I'm not liking the price. 
So he kind of makes this casual comment. He says, ah, you know, it's been a third of your life in bed. And his point was, then you ought to spend a third of your paycheck on a bed, right? But I remember even thinking back then, it's actually true what he said. But I was thinking, uh, I mean, the Lord does give His beloved sleep. I thank God when I pillow my head at night that I have a bed to sleep in and a roof over my head. I really do. More often than not, I say, thank you, God, for this blessing. But it's also a reminder of human frailty. You know, every one of us spends somewhere between 25 and 35% of our entire life in a useless and basically unconscious state. Let's say you live to be 90 years old. 30 years of your life, entire years, were spent sawing logs and counting sheep in la-la land. Think about that. Webster's 1828 defines sleep this way, to take rest by a suspension of the voluntary exercise of the powers in the mind and body. In other words, it's taking the tools of alertness and reason and productivity and just sticking them up on the shelf. Now I wonder, in eternity's records, how much of our spiritual life is spent sawing logs and counting sheep in la-la land? Have you ever tried to wake up a deep sleeper? How about this one? You ever tried to wake up a sleepwalker who doesn't think they're asleep? Of course, now with the internet age, you can pull up all sorts of stories on this. And you know how many murder trials have led to an acquittal because the person was allegedly sleepwalking? There's actually been several. I read about a guy recently who woke up in a pond surrounded by alligators because while he was sleepwalking, he decided he wanted to wrestle an alligator. Well, thank God he woke up before he actually commenced his act. It was back in 2005, NBC reported in London, one of the strangest stories I've heard in connection with this, but a teenage girl got out of bed sleepwalking. She climbed up the arm of a crane in downtown London walked across tightrope walk, a narrow I-beam, and they found her the next morning, 130 feet off the ground, hanging onto the arm of a crane, fast asleep. True story. You can look it up. It took two hours to get her off of there. I'm sure she was surprised when she woke up. But uh, typically, though, sleepwalking people don't do such strange exploits, but they will carry out regular basic activities. Their eyes are often open. They're looking at you, but they have this dull countenance, and they're strangely unaware of danger. They act very irrationally. What they're doing doesn't make a lot of sense. And they often become aggressive or even violent when somebody attempts to wake them up. Again, apply that to the spiritual. I think it's terrifying the fact this statement is even made shows the danger of spending large tracts of our Christian life sleepwalking. Where you're able to carry out normal religious function on autopilot. It's like your eyes look open, but they're glazed over. They're not sharp. They're not alert. There's this strange unawareness of spiritual danger. There's no lion out there. What are you kidding me? I can wrestle lions. They're resistant to those trying to shake them from slumber. And you see in Scripture, what's the opposite of sleep? It's the Greek 
verb, it's translated watch. Now, watch comes from different words, but when it's used as a verb like that, it means to stay awake. 23 times we see it in the New Testament. Watch, stay awake. 1 Corinthians 16.13, watch you. Stand fast in the faith. Quit you or stand up like men. Be strong. 1 Thessalonians 5, Therefore let us not sleep as do others, but let us watch and be sober. Well, the verse I already mentioned, 1 Peter 5.8, Be sober, be vigilant. That's the word watch. Be sober, be awake, be clear-headed and keep your eyes open. Why? Because your adversary, the devil, like a roaring lion, walketh about seeking whom he may devour. Now there's two areas mentioned here that will serve to keep us awake on this enchanted ground of religious blindness. Here's what one of them is. Know the time. He says, knowing the time, it's high time to awake out of sleep. High time means the hour. The alarm's just about to go off, he's saying. Know the season. That's one defense against falling asleep spiritually. Now you remember Matthew 16.3, the Lord's rebuking the Pharisees, and here's what He says. He says, you can say in the morning it's going to be foul weather today for the sky is red and lowering. Oh, ye hypocrites! You can discern the face of the sky, but can you not discern the signs of the times? He's saying, you guys look up into the sky and you can look at the clouds and you can see what's coming. You don't know the exact time it's going to rain. You don't know how much the storm's going to blow, but you know it's coming. You can see it. And he says, how can you not discern the times? Now, the Lord does not rebuke people for that which they cannot know. And by the way, nobody knows the day and hour Christ is going to return. If they say they do, they're a liar. Christ Himself said no man knows that. I don't know why that's so complicated today. But at the same time, there is a lot going on that indicate we are heading towards the end of the last days. The Lord doesn't rebuke us for what we cannot know, but He does rebuke us for what we refuse to see. Let's say you were transported from 2017. You were going to go back to somewhere in the middle of the second century, and you were going to speak to some Christians there and tell them about life in 21st century America. And so you begin to paint a picture. You say, you know, uh, <clears throat> Israel actually, believe it or not, is going to be back in Palestine after 1900 years. It's amazing. All the world watched. They kept their ethnicity. They kept their language. They know the tribes because of DNA evidence. You don't know what that is, but soon enough you'll know. And you know the weirdest thing? They went from nothing to one of the most technologically advanced nations in the world in five decades. And what's more, they're taking steps to rebuild the third temple that's going to house the man of sin, the Antichrist. Oh yeah, you can pull up pictures of it. You can see the menorah candle. You can see the, the tension building. In fact, just this week, one of their transportation secretaries was talking about the logistics of transporting all the Hebrew males into Jerusalem for the next temple that they're going to build. They're already making plans in the train infrastructure for this to happen. So you tell this person all about that, and then you say, the world's going to become unbelievably global in emphasis. National boundaries are going to be disappearing. They're going to be clamoring for one world ruler under a new world order. And you're going to see all these religions they are blending together into one confused mass. And false teachers, they're, they're exploding in the year 2017. Confusion reigns. They're 
heaping to themselves teachers having itching ears. There's this widespread rebellion against parents. Men are lovers of their own selves. And they have these things called iPhones. And all they do is take selfies. And they have these things called Facebook. And it's all about me and where I grocery shopped and how long I was in the bathroom. The love of many is going to wax cold, you tell this person. There's going to be a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof. In fact, Christendom is going to be filled with people dominated by feeling and experience and rejecting sound Bible teaching. In fact, the local church is going to be largely replaced with online networking. There's this guy named Mark Zuckerberg, you tell him, head of this thing called Facebook. Why he's making statements saying this is the new church, it's going to replace it. Who needs the local assembly anymore? It's all electronic. There's going to be a widespread rejection of the creation account, you tell them. The global flood. Doesn't Peter say something about that? Add to that the dramatic increase in earthquakes, the extinction of animal species, the bizarre weather patterns, and so-called natural disasters. AccuWeather recently reported from 2000 to 2009 there were three times the natural disasters as in the period of 1980 to 89. In fact, I read another unrelated article talking about tornadoes in the Midwest. And they said from 1950 to now, the number of storms every year has stayed constant. But the number of tornadoes in each storm has risen by 50% in the last 60 years or so. Even on July 7, 2017, Montana has its biggest earthquake in 20 years. And so you're describing this first century Christian all the things I've just said, and then you ask him, say, if you were living in that day, what would you do? They'd say, I wouldn't waste it. I'd discern the face of the sky if it were me. Boy, if I were living that age, I'd know it was at the door. I'd know Jesus was going to rend the heavens at some point soon. I would know it. It's obvious. The writing's on the wall. They say, I'd be sober. I'd be alert. I'd be awake. Anyone can see His appearings drawing nigh. The end of all things is at hand. But why is it it's so hard to pay attention to the signs of the times when you're the one living in the times? It's always been that way. So knowing the time is going to keep you awake. Number two is eternity is rapidly approaching. He says, now is our salvation nearer than when we believe. Now he's not saying you're closer to being saved from your sin. What he's talking about is final salvation. He's saying from the moment you trusted Christ until now, all that's happened, it's like a freight train. Eternity is bearing down on you. The day is approaching when that great angel puts one foot in the earth and one foot in the ocean and he raises his hand and swears by him that lives forever and ever that there shall be time no more. It's going to end. That clock isn't going to be needed. It's going to burn. It's coming. How many years since you were saved by the blood of Christ? Say it was 20 years ago, maybe. You're 7,300 days closer to the appearing of Christ. 175,200 hourglasses have run out of sand since your salvation. I mean, if you honestly believed, and you had good evidence somehow, 
hypothetically, that Jesus is coming in the clouds for you tomorrow, what difference would that make? What changes? One of these days, that will be the case. Which is why 1 John 3 tells us, He that hath this hope in Him purifies Himself. If you're looking at this world for reasons why you shouldn't sin, you are right for destruction. If you're looking to the heavens for reasons you shouldn't sin, you're looking to the right place. Because King Jesus is coming back. You see, there's this willing ignorance of the times and a hazy view of eternity that puts us to sleep. Back to the 90-year figure. Somebody lives to be 90, let's say. They spend 30 years of their life asleep, which again is the way the Lord designed it, but you understand my point. The average adult spends 5 hours and 4 minutes a day vegetated in front of their television set. Add that over a 90-year span. Somebody lives to be 90 years statistically, they spend 49 entire years of their life asleep or watching television. Think about that. You parents, do you have time to goof around with the souls of your children? Do you have time to make excuses? How many of you want to face Christ and say, my child is burning in hell because of my example? Wake up! The alarm clock's ringing. The Lord's finger's on the light switch. He's coming back. Know the time. Look to the heavens. Stop sleepwalking. Blessed is that servant, he said, when the Lord comes finds him watching. See, the night is far spent. He means our flawed existence in this imperfect and slumbering world is drawing to a close. The sun is just about to rise. The day is at hand. Heaven's alarm clock is ringing very clearly. And if you believe that, it will make a difference in conduct. Here's how. Let us cast off the works of darkness. Darkness speaks of obscurity, shadiness, those things that you know you'd be ashamed of if Jesus blazed out of the heavens right now. You think He's not going to know about them when He shows up? You see, we have opportunity to step into the light willingly now. Why do so many despise that? You're going to hide your iniquity in your closet when King Jesus comes back? Not hardly. Put on the armor of light. Now that's interesting terminology. It's the same armor, of course, mentioned in Ephesians 6. But see, every piece of that armor is in stark contrast to the wicked works of darkness. Put on the breastplate of righteousness, not unrighteousness. Have your loins girt about with truth, not error. Put on the helmet of salvation, not condemnation. Have your feet shod with the good news, not adding to the moral pollution that's already waist deep around the entire globe. And take the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God, as a light shining in a dark place. These are basically the elements of Christian character. That's what the armor is. Obeying God, walking with Christ, manifesting Christian character is protection. You got it. That's your armor. He says, let us walk honestly. That means decently, properly, in such a way that marks us as a follower of Christ. In other words, 
You ought to be known as somebody walking a straight and narrow pathway through a world that's broad and crooked. And it is that. Not in rioting, that's partying, or drunkenness, we know what that is, or chambering and wantonness, that's immorality, that's looseness and lack of restraint. Just throw these things off. Obligation number three is stay up. So pay up, wake up, stay up. Put ye on the Lord Jesus Christ and make not provision for the flesh. Verse 14. Now in 1 Corinthians 10, there are several historic incidences from Israel's history that are given, uh, followed by commentary under the inspiration of the Holy Ghost by Paul. And then he gives this observation that these things happen to them as examples to keep us from doing likewise. Now maybe you remember the statement there in verse 12. Wherefore, let him that thinketh he standeth take heed lest he fall. Now, there's nothing wrong with standing. There's nothing wrong with soberly assessing where we are in our Christian character. But here's the danger. What he's saying is the danger is thinking you're stable in and of yourself. You're impervious to destruction. That won't happen to you. You've reached some sort of plateau above the fiery darts of the wicked one. Or you're justified in running from God and ignoring His counsel. And he's saying to such a person... The warning's clear. Take heed because a fall is imminent. Imminent. Your foot shall slide in due time. And it might happen very, very quickly. Perhaps you remember in James chapter 1, I was going to have his turn there, but I will not for sake of time, but hopefully you remember the discussion. There's this, uh, in fact, we were there several months ago, I don't remember when, talking about temptation and sin. But it's a major discussion on how sin occurs and the devil is not directly mentioned. Of course, what that's inferring is that our own nature is plenty able to destroy us. Our greatest enemy as a Christian is not the devil. Look in the mirror. Your greatest enemy as a Christian is you. It's your own nature. But there's several interesting points given there as to how sin occurs. In verse 13, it says, Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. Who in their right mind would say that? Well, here's what that's showing. The deceitfulness of sin tends to blame our own sinful tendencies on the providence of God. Well, it's meant to be. Just look what happened. Well, I threw the fleece out there and such and such came to pass. I just can't stand up against this, you know. There was a seductress in Proverbs 7. Here she is taking this young fool like an ox to the slaughter and with her fair speech causing him to yield. One of the things she says is, I've come forth diligently to meet you and I've found you. And basically what she's saying is, oh, it must be meant to be. I just came looking for you and maybe I asked God for help and here you are. Isn't that fantastic? So he's saying, let's jerk the rug out from that first of all. Don't you dare blame temptation on God. What a horrible premise. But every one of you and me are prone to do that. So don't say you're tempted by God. But he says every man that's universal is tempted when he's drawn away of his own lust and enticed. You know, temptation, it's like you're walking through the marketplace and temptation is like these glittering jewels all across the sides. But you still have your wallet and your cash in your own pocket. Those aren't going to jump into your cart. They're not going to make themselves belong to you. You've got to crack the wallet of your will and shell out some green stuff 
to make sin happen. And that's why he says when lust has conceived, it takes two parties. It takes temptation and it takes your willing acquiescence through a choice of the will to leave the door open. And that is how sin conceives and brings forth death. That's how it happens. Oh, Romans 6. I, I, this is review. I hope this is tying it all together. There's a discussion on how to avoid sin. You remember that? There's three key words in Romans 6. What are they? One is knowing. There's doctrinal truth primarily relating to your standing and the things Christ has freely given you. Knowing this, knowing that. So, knowing is part. And then what's number two? Reckon. You have to count these to be true. Do you feel dead to sin right now? Probably not. Are you willing to count it to be true because God says it is? See? Know it because God says it. Reckon it to be true. And what's the third? Yield. Fighting sin is not a matter of putting up your spiritual dukes and deciding I'm going to knock this one out. Here's what sin is. Sin is an opportunity with two thrones placed before you. On one throne, you've got the Lord of glory who loved you and gave Himself for you. And on the other throne, you've got the world, the flesh, and the devil and all that stands opposed to God. And every opportunity to sin is an opportunity to approach one of these thrones and kneel down and worship before one of them. That is what sin is. You fight sin by choosing to yield before the right throne because of what Christ has done, because you count it to be true, and now comes the choice of the will. The one on this throne is worth serving and loving, and I'm going to obey Him. I would submit to you, most sin actually occurs before it's observed by everybody else. Somebody's involved in some scandalous fall, that wasn't their sin. Their sin took place several blocks back. It's when the yielding of the will opens the door a crack and lets in the temptation. Notice this here in verse 14. Put ye on the Lord Jesus Christ. Now that's strange terminology in our culture. The Greek writers frequently would use that terminology of putting on somebody else. And what they meant by that was adapt their lifestyle. Fully imitate Imitate their life, their thought patterns, their habits. So what he's saying is walk in the footsteps of Christ. Give conscious thought to recall who He is and what He said and what He did. Now, let me ask you, how much time did Jesus spend deciding whether or not He was going to dialogue with evil? How much time? Uh, how much time did Jesus... How much time did it take for Him to reject Satan's blasphemous temptation? Did he tell the devil, you know something? That's a fine offer, and I really know what I should do. I'll tell you what, give me 24 hours. I'm going to go pray about this. You know why he didn't? That would have been sin. Do you know why it would have been sin? Because he would have known he was leaving the door to the will open, and the same thing happens to you. But here's the part we need to be brutally honest with ourselves. You can leave the will gate cracked open, put a noble spin on it, and everybody in your life would think you're not doing it, but you know you are. I bet every one of you has done that, and you know what I'm talking about. It's part of why sin is so deceitful. 
Oh, we're so good at spiritual rhetoric, aren't we? Putting on a happy face. Everything's fine, you say. And you're surrounded by a pack of roaring lions that are about to tear you apart. Look what he says. You put on Christ and make not provision for the flesh. Provision is to care for future needs. If I'm going to make provisions for you, I'm going to store up food in my pantry when you're going to come visit because you're going to be hungry. He's saying, in a nutshell, don't make decisions that you know are going to place you in the pathway of temptation. Don't make decisions, don't allow things into your life as a Christian that you know are leaving the gate open for sin to be conceived and to bring forth death. Some of you have driven out in the middle of nowhere, I have in several states, and you're on some freeway and there's not much around. And then you see uh, these, this imposing structure a ways out, razor wire, towers, and And uh, what do the signs along the freeway say? Warning. Do not pick up hitchhikers. You know why? It's a maximum security prison over there. Let's say you drove by one next week. There's the towers and the razor wire. What an interesting sign there on the side of the road. Greetings. Please pick up every hitchhiker and believe everything they say. By the way, feel free to throw any spare tools over the fence. Butane torches, bolt cutters, lock picks. In fact, if you have time, just feel free to cut some holes in it. Oh, and any guns you're not using, just hide those in the ditch. And be sure to ignore any warning sirens or flashing lights. Ridiculous picture. But that's how a lot of Christians treat their sin nature. You have a seditious, traitorous, conniving, convicted felon by the God of heaven dwelling within you. And some of you may be playing with cutting holes in the fence and giving him a way of escape and making provision for him to get out of where he ought to be. I can't tell you you're doing that, neither can somebody else usually, but you know when you are. Look, at you can snow other people into thinking you're not doing it. But you're not going to fool Christ and you're not going to fool others when you go down in flames in your spiritual life. A lot of prominent men of God have gone down in flames and somebody looked and they say, well, boy, that happened so fast. Once again, no, it didn't happen fast. It happened when Wheelgate was left cracked open. It happened when provision was made for the flesh. It happened when that counseling session turned into one-on-one. It happened when more details were shared that should have been. And every one of those checkpoints, they were making provision for the flesh and they knew it and eventually they couldn't stand against the temptation. I've told men at the prison for years, don't walk into the bar and sit down at the bar stool and ask God for grace to not drink. Sounds basic. But I tell you and I the same. Don't sit down in front of Hollywood's filth and ask God to give you a pure thought life. Don't hang around wicked counselors and expect God to bless when you are placing yourself in the counsel of the ungodly. Don't fill your head with sensual trash music on the radio and expect to have a biblical mindset. 
You can not do it. And let me tell you something. If you think you can, you are thinking you stand. And you better take heed lest you fall. That applies to all of us. None of us are impervious to that. None. The most spiritually suicidal thing you can do is give your flesh opportunity to flourish rather than slamming the door shut. Lock the deadbolt. Let's bring this to a close. How's the repayment of your debt? I'm not talking about money. I'm talking about love. Maybe it wouldn't hurt to get alone with God and ask Him. Examine your life, your speech, your relationships. Do I show the love of God? But see, you're not going to show the love of God by reading definitions about it and trying to focus on it. If you're not showing the love of God, that's indicative that you're distant from God. The root problem is draw nigh to God and He will draw nigh to you. And out of your belly will flow rivers of living water. This is not a once-for-all thing. Look, all of us need time to examine self, don't we? All of us do. We all have seasons in life where things get busy, our thought patterns are struggling. Sometimes we'd like to be done with the vacillations, and someday we will in glory. But for now, we've got to deal with them as they come. Are you sleepwalking? Here's how that's manifested. You're able to carry out normal religious duty. But you know you're not very discerning. You don't take warnings very seriously. You don't have a serious fear of falling. There's no awareness in your mind of the roaring lion seeking to tear out your jugular and spill your blood on the ground. You treat the church lightly. You think the Bible doesn't matter that much. You think you can imbibe in the world's filth and not be harmed. If that's you, you're asleep. You better wake up. Where are you making provision for the flesh, if anywhere? Look, sugarcoating this here is fatal. We have to deal honestly before God who sifts the hearts. I'll challenge you. Wherever you're laying out provisions for the flesh to flourish, cut them off. Don't think you stand. You won't stand for long. Do you know the Lord this morning? I hope all of you do, but most of the time I close with these questions. And you sit here and say, yes, I know my sins are forgiven, not by the way I feel, but because of what God has said. You say, oh, I, I know I can't save myself. I know I deserve God's condemnation. There's one who died in my place, and that one was God Himself. Have you trusted Christ? If not, I'll say it again. If I can be of any help, talk to me after. There's no greater questions than that a guy could answer. Let's pray. Father, thank you for giving us warnings. I pray, Lord, we would be as a church family of people that are awake. Lord, all around us are spiritual snoring. It encroaches on our own life. 
Help us to be very honest before you and ourselves. Help us to not be discouraged by these kind of warnings, but to know you tell us these things out of a heart of infinite love because you want us to be blessed. You want us spared from destruction. You want us to earn rewards in heaven. You want us to stand valiantly for truth. You want us to earn crowns and glory. You want us to finish well. I pray You'd give us a great distrust for our own wicked nature to believe it's just as evil as You say it is and just as dangerous to make provision as You say it is. Help us to put on Christ that this world may see it and fear and give You glory. In Jesus' name, Amen.